0: stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Before I start into the latest installment of brains, beliefs and biases this time with David Chantal on his book The Human Element. I want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to transfer funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. And let's get into the human element. There's a copy up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter, and you'll be in the hat to win a copy. Here we go. Today's book is for anyone who wants to introduce a new idea or innovation into the world. Most marketers, innovators, executives, activists, or anyone else in the business of creating change operate on a deep assumption. It is the belief that the best, and perhaps only way to convince people to embrace a new idea is to heighten the appeal of the idea itself. This reflex leads us down a path of adding features and benefits to our ideas or increasing the sizzle of our messaging, all in the hope of getting others on board. Our guest calls this instinct, the fuel based mindset. The fuel based mindset explains so much of what we do from adding countless trivial features to software to bolting a sixth blade on to a shaving blade. By focusing on fuel, innovators neglect the other half of the equation, the psychological frictions that oppose change. Frictions create drag on innovation. In his book, our guest highlights the four frictions that operate against innovation. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author Of the human element, overcoming the resistance that awaits new ideas. David Chantal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we start, I just want to say I have a copy of this beautiful book up for grabs. It's a fascinating read. We're not going to get near enough of the content today. And David has kindly given up time just before he heads away on holidays. So I thought we'd start, David, with a different type of the law of attraction namely the battle between fuel and friction. And I'll set you up with a quote and a question that you pose in the book. When a bullet is fired from a gun, it leaves the barrel moving 1300 feet per second, breaking the sound barrier. If shot at the ideal trajectory, which is 45 degrees, it can travel for nearly two miles. But a bullet isn't just powerful, it's equally precise. In a steady hand, the bullet will strike its target with pinpoint accuracy, time and time again. But what enables such a technologically simple device to achieve such extraordinary power and precision? Over to you, David.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we we open the book with this metaphor, and it's really meant to highlight that anytime you're trying to bring change about into the world, there are these two forces at play, as you point out in fuel, which are all of the forces that push people towards change. So this might be features and benefits of a product, this might be the way you advertise it, the way you price it, the way you market it, all of these forces that are meant to heighten the appeal or draw magnetism to the idea. And there are lots and lots of books and, and uh materials written about how to increase the fuel or increase the attractiveness of an idea or come up with a better idea in the first place but just like a bullet where most people's instinct about what it is that makes a bullet fly is gunpowder most people if you ask an audience what makes a bullet fly 70 percent of the hands will say gunpowder which is true it's not a wrong answer it's just only half of the answer that's what propels a bullet forward, just like that's what fuel or marketing or advertising or product development does to make an idea more interesting. But on the other side are these forces that oppose change or oppose progress. And in the case of the bullet, it's forces like drag that push against the bullet, it's forces like gravity, constantly trying to pull the bullet to the ground. And unless the bullet is able to overcome these forces working against it, it will be powerful, but it will never actually achieve its objective. Similarly, in innovation and entrepreneurship and 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 change creation, there is drag there too. Except the drag, instead of gravity and wind resistance and and uh, other types of forces that are physically pushing against your idea, these are psychological forces, and we call these forces frictions. And in the book, we talk about the four frictions that are constantly working against your idea from uh, originating with the audience that you're trying to to affect change with and unless you're able to overcome these frictions just like a bullet, your idea may be powerful but it will never actually achieve its objective it's it's
1: so meaningful for the audience of this show David because so many are change makers, heads of innovation, etc and we've all been there we're all like kind of going, okay I'll, I'll sell the idea better I'll make it really really appealing But as you show throughout the book and we'll get to later on, It is about focusing on the friction, and that's the difficult part because it's
0: not—it's not as sexy as focusing on the fuel. Well, true, right? I mean, if 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 you're putting forward a new strategy in your organization, or you're trying to roll out a new initiative, and people aren't saying yes, and they're not getting on board, all of our instincts as human beings is, well, I'm probably not explaining it properly, or I haven't. Uh, made it seem appealing enough. So let me rework it a little bit and reintroduce it. Or maybe let me explain it differently or sell it differently. And we're constantly frustrated by the fact that even though we do that, people still don't get on board. And you're right. Uh, As human beings, it's our overwhelming bias to think that we are in control. So if they're not saying yes, surely, we need to do something differently. Uh, And this book is really more about now the idea. Hopefully, it's good. I mean, we're, we're assuming that you've got good ideas. But really, the attention needs to be paid to the audience, not the idea. And how do we design not just the thing, but how do we design the introduction of that thing into its intended audience?
1: And it's just so much more work, as well. That's the other thing about all this. But let let's give a concrete example right up front. One that you give in the book, one that reached out to you for help, which is the case study you give right up top about Beach
0: House. It's a great story. So. This is a custom furniture company, they're uh, probably about five or six years old at this point. And their value proposition is that they can make custom furniture. So things like sofas for 70% less than what custom furniture typically costs. Typically, custom made furniture is very expensive, uh, and only available to very high income individuals. The benefit of course, of custom furniture is that you can design it exactly the way you want perfect size, perfect depth, uh, perfect uh, color, hardware, fabric, every little bit of it can be designed to your specifications. Um, and the, the company is able to do this for a fraction of what it would typically cost, which puts these types of products right in range with things that you would find at retail. So at least in the United States, this is similar now in price to a couch, you might find at a crate and barrel, or you might find it a pottery barn, which makes it more accessible. So Uh, Lots of appeal in the idea. And then, of course, the other benefit in normal times is that this company can actually deliver this custom piece of furniture to your home in under 10 weeks, which is pretty remarkable in terms of supply chain. So uh, not surprisingly, the idea has a ton of appeal. They've got thousands of visitors to their website every day and hundreds of visitors to their retail stores every day who spend a fair amount of time, 10, 20 minutes uh, on the site designing the perfect sofa putting together all the bits and pieces, figuring out the color, figuring out the fabric, figuring out the size. And right before they're about to hit purchase in the checkout experience online, or right before they're about to put their credit card down in the retail store, uh, this very interesting thing happens, which is that they walk away, they abandon their cart, sometimes literally or figuratively. And so the company was left scratching their heads like what is going on here? Clearly, there's enough fuel, there's enough magnetism to bring them to the site in the first place. There's enough appeal to the products that they're willing to spend, sometimes upwards of 30 minutes designing the perfect sofa. Why is it that they're not pushing by at the end? And of course, if you're in the audience, and you're thinking here, what might be going on? If you're like me, your instincts are "Eh, probably the price like they saw the price added up at the end. And they're like, "Eh, with taxes and service, like maybe it's more expensive, or uh, maybe they're not confident that they've actually chosen something that will fit in their house, or maybe they're unclear on what the return policy is like, if they've designed the sofa themselves, and it gets delivered, and they don't like it, who's responsible? Is it the company? Or is it me? Because I designed the sofa myself. So the company's instincts are let's run a promotion to reduce the price. Let's talk about our money back guarantee to make it perfectly clear why, uh, why people should consider taking this risk. Because if they're unhappy, we'll take the sofa back. And so they spent all this time and money running new ads, running new promotions and changing the price. And it didn't have the desired effect on conversion. And so we went in to do some research to find out what is actually going on in these consumers' minds. And when you interview 10 or so customers, this interesting pattern begins to emerge. And one of the surprising reasons why people didn't say yes, wasn't because of the price, it wasn't because of the money back, it wasn't because of the return policy, it was because they would not allow themselves to purchase a new sofa until they could figure out what they were going to do with their existing sofa, which sounds ridiculous. You're like, wait a minute, like, how is that so difficult, right? Getting rid of the existing sofa, but when you think about it, Let's say you're a young uh, millennial or Gen Z consumer living in a walk-up apartment and you've got this sofa already in your home. Do you have to like hire movers to get rid of it? Do you have to call up a bunch of your friends and say like, hey, could you come over here on a weekend and help me move my sofa? And let's assume that you're even able to get it out the door and get it down the stairs. Like, what do you do then? Do you just like leave it in the alley behind your house? Do you have to call a trash removal service or like, how does this even work? And there's so much anxiety that that produces in the mind of the consumer, we call this emotional friction, there's so much emotional friction that exists in their mind, that they're like, forget it, this is too much for me to figure out. So of course, if you hear this in your beach house or, or a retailer, and you hear this, this data, the solution becomes obvious, right? The solution is clearly well, take away the existing sofa when you drop off the new one, which is exactly what they did and conversion increased dramatically but the point of the story is beach house or companies like beach house could have continued down this path of spending money on promotions and cutting into their gross margins and changing around content and language on their website and in a b testing all sorts of different promotional tactics which would have been very time intensive and costly and it never really would have solved the problem because the problem wasn't about the magnetism of the idea the problem, like most of the ones we talk about in this book, is overcoming this emotional resistance that people have uh, because the idea of getting rid of the existing thing is is hard for them to wrap their heads around.
1: This is what I absolutely love about doing this show is sharing the stories behind the theories, and you do that so well with so many great case studies. And it was just great that you worked on that one. But I wanted to come back to the bullet idea and uh, ask our audience to go. Okay, you're a head of change. You're head of transformational change, or you're a CEO trying to get change in the company, even with that fuel behind you, that you're the CEO. One of the things is we need more budget, we need more people, which is the fuel. And that's the natural thing, I need to get more people behind this. And then we get really frustrated when people don't buy into the idea. And we focus on the fuel, and we get frustrated. And then we have the attribution bias where we're like, we blame them they're the problem, etc. And we got to really look in the mirror and going on wait a second, when I point the finger, there's three pointing right back at me. And pretty pretty, there's not four because it would be perfect for this metaphor, which is, it's the drag on the bullet, the drag on the bullet is the friction. And there's four main frictions that you identify in the book. And I thought at this stage, would give a high level overview of the four. And then I'd love to go into
0: the each in depth as much as we
1: have time
0: for today. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, as we talked about, there are these four frictions working against change. The frictions that we discuss in the book are number one, inertia, which is our overwhelming desire to stick with what we know, despite the fact that we know that what we're doing today is inadequate. And so this is really around the status quo bias. Human beings have this habit of the mind that we always always favor things that are familiar to things that are unfamiliar. And so that's inertia. The second friction we talk about is effort, how much real or perceived effort is required in order to make the change. And this isn't just like physical effort. This is cognitive effort. It's a mental effort. This is economic effort. Uh, how much will we have to give of ourselves in order to adopt that new thing? The third is emotion. What are the undesired negative feelings? Our new idea might cause in others. Uh, oftentimes, the very people we're trying to help that generates this level of emotional friction. And then the fourth is something we refer to as reactance, which is a uh, somewhat fancy term that effectively means people do not like being changed by others. And the more we feel like somebody else's idea is being imposed on us, no matter how good the idea is, we will push back against that change with equal force, simply because we don't like the idea of somebody attempting to change us. You talk about thinking in fuel, and the reasons a fuel based
1: mindset actually rules the world. And you spark our curiosity here with a fascinating excerpt right at the start of this chapter, you say a car salesperson is expected to sell about 10 cars a month. That's the industry average. The more ambitious aspire to break the 20 a month club. But there's a salesperson who is the best car salesperson on the planet. And you use him as a case study to share how removing friction is the way forward in sales as well as in innovation.
0: It's funny, the last example I gave you of the frictions was reactants. And I mentioned that people tend to push back against ideas they feel like are being imposed upon them. Maybe the ultimate example that people might imagine in their heads is the pushy car salesperson, or at least in the United States, we have this physical reaction to hearing the word used car salesman or car salesperson because uh, we're used to interactions where car salespeople give us the hard sell. We feel like they're trying to uh, force us to say yes to something when we're uncertain. And that is reactance in action. It's not that the car salesperson doesn't have a ton of knowledge. They know way more about the car than we do, most likely. They know way more about the market. They know way more about what's available. It's just the manner in which they deliver that message to us is something we have this aversion to, and that's reactance. So it's ironic that uh, one of the examples that we start with is a car salesperson, and not just a car salesperson, but to your point, the... Uh, the best car salesperson in history. And it is this gentleman named Ali Rada, who works at less Stanford, Chevrolet and Detroit, just outside of Detroit and Dearborn, Michigan. And you mentioned that, you know, the best car salespeople by conventional wisdom are those that sell 20 or 30 cars a month. And if you sell 30 cars a month, like you can get a job anywhere you want. Uh, Ali Rada, by contrast, performs about 15 times better than the industry average, he sells by himself almost 1500 cars a year, which is in some cases, the equivalent uh, performance of an entire dealership just by himself. And so one of the things that we wanted to know when we were getting into the research for this book is how does Ali Rada do it? Like, how does he outperform his peers by a factor of 15 to one? And what is his secret? Like, what is the technique? and what you learn when you speak to him is that his approach to selling cars isn't about features and benefits it's not about you know tactics or running the the sales scripts that they describe in the dealership in fact every car manufacturer has a sales script like they've got this handbook on how to sell and how to overcome this objection and how to overcome that objection ali basically takes that script and throws it out the window and approaches sales in a very different way And his philosophy is really that, look, you've come to the dealership because you've obviously got some interest in a particular car or a particular couple of cars. You've probably done some research online. You've learned a little bit about what's available and the packages. So when when somebody comes into the dealership and speaks to Ali, he doesn't view his job as trying to sell features and benefits because most people, at least in this day and age, have some sense for what they're looking for. His job as he perceives it is all about removing the headwinds that stand in the way of you saying yes. So what anxieties do you have about this car? Let me see if I can address those anxieties. What are you worried about in terms of its costliness? Where is there ambiguity about how you would maintain or operate this vehicle? Where do your sources of trepidation happen? And Ali just systematically removes a lot of those anxieties. At the end, it's not about him selling you something that you don't want. It's about him enabling you to say yes to the thing that you do want. And so he views his entire role as removing friction instead of adding
1: fuel. That's a, such a great story, and I'll have so many people intrigued. Ali Ray will be
0: get job offers everywhere, man. I mean, it's a fascinating. And the other thing that's important to point out is like he he doesn't go by conventional metrics, like the time to close, like you walk into a dealership and the goal is to get you not to leave that dealership without buying a car. He's very happy for you to wait for a year or more before you find a car, because that's the moment when you're going to be most receptive or he's very happy to tell you that you should go to another dealership because no matter what he says about a particular car, he knows that that car comes with a bunch of friction in your mind, he'd rather see you happy and go to another brand. Because he knows that by doing that, he's engendering trust. And the next time you're looking for a car, he'll probably be your first call. So he's very, uh, I would say wise and, and unusual in this particular domain. an
1: example you give with your co author for this book is Lauren Nord- Nordgren when he moved to campus that he had a real realtor and the real estate agent looked after him and s- did the same kind of thing again.
0: Yeah, Lauren, who is my co-author, is a psychologist and I think one of the beautiful things about this, well hopefully one of the beautiful things about this book is this sort of harmony between applied and, and, and research. And Lauren talks about a realtor that he used, and this is a, a slightly different example. It's not as much about emotional friction as it was with Ali Rada. This is about, um, about how to give somebody a bit of a roadmap. So one of the the challenges with effort, uh, the friction of effort is that a reason that effort is, uh, effort shows up in change is sometimes the change or the road to the change is ambiguous. Like when a company leader comes in and says, all right, we're going to do digital transformation, or all right, we're going to come in and, be more innovative as a company. Like these ideas sound lofty and 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 interesting, but like, what day of the week do we do innovation? How do we even start digital transformation? The more ambiguous the path is to get to a change, the more we resist it. And the example that you mentioned about Lauren's realtor is meant to remove some of the ambiguity about when to begin a process. And some of this comes from signaling. And so letting people know when to do something can be really helpful in removing the, the the friction of effort. And Lauren's realtor example, when Lauren moved to Chicago, this person was particularly helpful, just a phenomenal resource for him. And mentioned to Lauren, hey, you must have a lot of colleagues moving to Chicago to work at Kellogg or work at Northwestern. When you hear about a new faculty member signing on to Kellogg. Give them my card. Let me know, let them know that I'm here to help them with the transition. And what that does is give Lauren a bit of an if then. So, if somebody comes to campus or if somebody's thinking about moving to Northwestern, then give them my business card, which triggers in Lauren's mind this ability to actually help them make that change. And sometimes that trigger uh, removes that ambiguity that, that results in effort related friction. So speaking of fuel, right? So
1: back to fuel. Sorry, I, I jumped ahead there because I was relating to right. stories. Uh, I'll, go where,
0: I'll go wherever you want me. to.
1: <laughs> nice job as well, and you're right. It is the beautiful thing about it. It, it brings together the uh, the harmony of right and left hemispheres nicely in the book as well, adding to the human element. But I. I loved when you talked about okay, so now you understand fuel, you understand that we see it, we we used to see it as the optimistic thing. It's the way forward for innovation or change, for example. But then there's two types of fuel and they're two sides of the same coin here. So there's progressive and a a aversive fuel. And under progressive fuel, then there's the seven P's as well, which I found really interesting again, which will speak to many CMOs, for example, Chief Marketing Officers who listen to the f- to the show, this piece will resonate
0: as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the sort of classic marketing mix. Originally, there were the four P's that were popularized by uh, my Kellogg colleague, Philip Kotler, who is this sort of scion of, of marketing goodness uh product place promotion price and then uh they've expanded into packaging and placement and a a variety of other things and these are the classic tools in a marketer's toolbox but they're all really designed to bring magnetism or fuel to an idea none of the marketing peas are focused on removing friction which i think is important to note But these are all progressive fuels, meaning these are all trying to add positivity to the idea. But there are other types of fuels that work similarly, but from the opposite side of the coin. And we refer to those as aversive fuels and aversive fuels are things like loss aversion or fear. Um, So I'll give you an example. If you ever go to a hotel booking site or an airline booking site, and you're about to buy a ticket, invariably, you've seen these messages pop up during the checkout process, like only one room available at this price, or only two rooms available at this price. This is an example of aversive fuel, this is trying to make you anxious in order to inspire action. And so um, the the purpose for mentioning these two things in the book are first, first and foremost, it doesn't matter about removing friction if your idea has no fuel. So we talk about the essential nature of fuel. We we assume your idea is a good idea. We assume that it has magnetism. There's lots of things written about that and how to make ideas more magnetic. We talk about the different types of fuel just to give it a little bit of a, a framing, but then we talk about, you know, that's really just only one side of this this equation and the other side which we dedicate the vast majority of the book to is the things that aren't mentioned in marketing classes and the things that aren't in the marketing mix, which are these four frictions.
1: Yeah, and it shows you why there's such a need in organisations. I mean, every organisation, especially if you're selling a product for an anthropologist, or somebody who understands behaviour, behavioural science, for example, because understanding nudges understanding what keeps people on the spot keeps the inertia high in people's mind is so essential. But I loved your take in this realm on negativity bias as well, because it's so innate in a human being. And we forget that because it dictates so much of our behavior.
0: You mentioned earlier in the book the reason that we call this book The Human Element is it's about the audience that you're introducing change to and how to work with that audience, not about the idea. And you know, particularly for human beings receiving a new strategy from a corporation or receiving a new initiative, or a new set of software that they have to use, or new sets of tools to do their jobs. Most people's reactions to this is how is this going to negatively affect me, like everything is a bit guilty before proven innocent. And that is because the longer we stay in our roles, and the longer we stay in an organization that behavior becomes very familiar. So in order to overcome that inertia, we need to think about how we can uh, address that bias, which is you know, first and foremost, this idea is an alien invader, what are the ways that it's going to destroy me versus seeing it as uh, a welcome change. And so we talk a lot about how to uh, minimize the friction that awaits those ideas simply by introducing them to the audience differently. I was fascinated by a couple
1: of studies, I'm going to pepper them in here a little sprinkle of a couple of the studies you talk about, there was two in particular, I thought was really interesting. One was when it comes to change initiatives and organisations, sometimes a consultant will come in, for example, and try and scaremonger people into it. And you talk about in the book, the scared straight programme, and how it backfired essentially, as uh, was one. And then the other one was, okay, that's the stick in a way, the mental stick, the fear stick. and then there's the carrot, which was well, we'll incentivize people for further imp- performance and see how that goes. And again, neither of these they could be both seen as fuel. neither
0: really worked. That's the other thing is that that sometimes you might get a little bit of a cosmetic benefit from a fuel-based approach where you might see just a little spike in the numbers because you're economically incenting people to do something or you're bonusing them. But those aren't excuse me, usually sticky changes, the sticky changes are the ones where you're making it easier for somebody to do something. And, um, you know, a kind of awesome example of both of these things at the moment, at least in the United States is the return to work. Um, I don't know if you're experiencing this in Europe as much. But uh, if you kind of go back in time to 2020, like rewind your mental clock to March 1st of 2020. And I were to ask all of you, all right, I'm going to give you two choices. One, is you are either you're able to work in your office or in wherever your your normal place of business is, and you can work with your colleagues and interact with your colleagues in person, or you can work exclusively from your second bedroom or your kitchen counter and, and work at home only and remote only, which would you prefer? Most people that I will pull with this question, like by a long shot will raise their hand and say I'd prefer option one, please. Then, uh, obviously March 15th or so rolls around and all of a sudden we have to work from home. We're forced to work from home. The idea of working remotely is better than the idea of not working and almost overnight, all of us change our behavior. And then you fast forward almost exactly two years later. So March 1st of 2022, and now all of these employers, I mean, presumably COVID's a little bit more under control. We understand it better. And all of a sudden, these offices are opening their doors back to employees and inviting them back into the office. And all of these employers are saying to their employees, "Like, hey, hey, remember that thing you said you wanted to do two years ago? We can do it. Like, everybody, come on back. Come on back to the office. Like, come on, it's open again." And all of these employees are like, "I don't know. I, I'm not so. I'm not so sure I want to do that." And so, what are employers' reactions to this? Like what do employers do? I mean, some employers are being really aversive in the way that they choose to do this. So they're using fuel, almost all of them are using fuel, some of them, like Elon Musk, are using aversive fuel, which is come back to the office or you're fired, right. So that is motivating, but it's motivating uh, in a negative way. And some people are like, Okay, if you're going to be like that, I'm out. uh, Because I don't like I don't agree to that, that philosophy, I don't agree to that style. Other employers are trying to heighten the appeal of coming back to the office. So they're doing things like paying for people's commute or bringing in free lunches and talking all about the cleaning policies of how they're going to sanitize surfaces. Or they're like, this is not a joke. I swear this is true. Putting soft serve ice cream machines in the cafeteria. And they're like, see, like, look at all (laughs) of these amenities. And they're adding all of this fuel in the hope of like increasing the appeal of coming back into the office. But what they're failing to recognize you know, that might get somebody to come in the office one day, sort of like, scared straight or incentives like that might catalyze an action in the short term. But that doesn't make the idea of coming back into the office longer term, more appealing, because they're not solving the real problem. The real problem of why people aren't coming back into the office doesn't have to do with surface sanitation or commuting, or the <laughs> absence of ice cream. Like the real reason many That's people. <laughs> many, many, the real reason many people are choosing not to come back to the office is in those two years, in those two years that they have been working from home, in addition to losing something, which is the collegiality and, and interaction of working in the office, they've gained something that's even more important. And what people have gained in those two years is this sense of autonomy, right? I've now got control over my time. I can wake up a little later. I can have lunch with my kids. I can go to play baseball in the park with my my kids after work, I can take the dog for a walk, I can take a little nap in the middle of the day, I'll get my work done. But I am fully in control of how I get my work done. And that is extremely appealing to people. And if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, as you move from like the functional base layer of human needs all the way up to the social and emotional needs they have, autonomy is a higher order need. And unless companies can help address some of the higher order, Elements here and remove some of that friction, which really is reactants. How do we preserve people's feeling of autonomy while still trying to achieve our business objectives? That's how you'll find a real answer to this problem, not by just throwing perks at it. Great answer, man. I, I, I had a picture of somebody listening,
1: munching on a soft serve ice cream, kind of going, No, Chantal, Chantal's wrong. I, I got one of these at home. Yeah, oh, this is pretty sweet. <laughs> oh, there's a killer. There's a killer little line here, and, and it relates to a former student of yours who again called on help. Uh, they worked at a on a large environmental project, and it, I love this line because this will ring true and it will resonate with so many of our audience. You said, in the physical world, applying force to an object has an opposite and equal effect. It increases friction the same is true of ideas. Applying fuel can quite unintentionally amplify resistance to the idea. And this teases up nicely for this example that you share.
0: There's a few examples that, that this gets, uh, that get highlighted in the book on this. And, and I think this is a really important point. Oftentimes, we cause the friction. And we do it inadvertently. And, and sometimes the friction we cause is actually a result of the very thing we think is going to help people. Um, I think the the best example, one of my favourite examples in the book actually comes from from history, which is the invention of cake mix. Yeah, I love that. I love that one, man. That's a brilliant one. And this is, I think, is like the perfect encapsulation of this idea. Um, if you're you're listening and and you think about your <laughs> your your baking history, if you've ever baked a cake, there's a pretty good chance that at some point in your life, you've used one of these packaged cake mixes. In fact, at least in the United States, 70 million Americans use packaged cake mixes every year, which is an astronomical number. And it's not a surprise why I mean, they generate fantastic cakes, it's significantly less expensive to buy pre measured dry uh, ingredients than it is to buy a bag of flour and buy a bag of sugar and buy a container of baking soda, etc. And so it's more cost effective, it produces a great result. And uh, you'd think, you know, surely this must have flown off the shelves the moment it was invented. If you go back to the 1920s, when cake mix was invented, and it was invented like 1929. Um, it was in response to an overwhelming Uh, desire by home bakers to have an easier way to bake a cake. So they had the same problem, then it was expensive to buy all the ingredients. Many people didn't have a lot of uh, experience in baking. And so the process was a bit intimidating. And gas ovens of yesteryear are a lot different than than electric ovens today. So there was this issue with precision and cakes wouldn't always turn out. So in response to this General Mills, who is the the brand, the parent company behind Betty Crocker, invented the very first instant cake mix, and it had everything It had flour and water and it had powdered eggs and powdered milk, all you needed to do uh, was add water to the to the mix, stir the water in, pop it into a cake pan and put it in the oven. And it would produce a fantastic cake time after time after time. And in usability studies, people far preferred the Betty Crocker cake to the home baked cakes. It was significantly more cost effective. So it delivered everything these customers said they wanted. And in kind of like classic, product development uh, patterns, like customer says they want this, you make this and then you sort of wait for them to uh, applaud your effort and, and have stuff fly off the shelves, but it would take another 25 years before cake mix would catch on. And when you look at the data, you're like, why on earth aren't people buying this, we're doing exactly what they're saying, it's delicious, it does everything they want, and they're not buying it, what could possibly be wrong, and it would take them about 15 years before they'd get fed up and actually start to seek an answer. And in order to find the answer, they recruited a guy uh, who is a Viennese psychologist back in the 1940s. And if you're, Im- a, <laughs> if you're imagining what a Viennese like Austrian psychologist from the 1940s looks like have that image in your head like that is pretty much exactly what this guy Ernst Dichte, looked like. And Ernst Dichte was a psychologist that studied in psychoanalysis, uh, in the same sort of school of thought as Sigmund Freud. And so they brought in Dicter, who is credited, by the way, with being the first researcher, rather than looking just at the functional needs of people to think about the social and emotional needs of people inside of the purchasing process. So he was the first to really adopt behavioral interviewing techniques and psychographic interviewing techniques in market research. In fact, dicta is credited with uh, coining the term the focus group. So he's, uh, this is like, this is his jam. So he went in to do the research to find out what was going on. And after doing a bunch of interviews with with users, what he realized was that in an attempt to remove uh, effort from the process to make it super easy for people to bake a cake. Betty Crocker had inadvertently made the process of baking a cake too easy, which is like, what? Like, what do you mean too easy? Well, when you think about it, when you think about it, why do you bake a cake? Why do you hire a cake? Uh, And most people bake a cake because they want to express really thoughtful sentiment for another person. Either they want to birthday or an anniversary or something, they want to show care. And the effort that we put into making the cake is actually part of the emotional benefit we get as the giver of the cake. It's the effort is actually part of what makes it precious. And so by putting in all powdered ingredients and only adding having people add water, they almost remove that little bit of effort that makes it feel like their cake. Like, if I only add water and pop it in the oven, did I make this cake? Or is this like a store bought cake? You know, like where does the line get drawn between how much effort I need to put in to make it mine. So they'd inadvertently made it too easy. And so people weren't buying it's almost like the equivalent Aiden, if I invited you over to to my house for dinner, I'm saying like, Hey, Aiden, and all your listeners come over, I'm going to cook you this homemade gourmet meal. And you pop into the kitchen and you see me like microwaving a bunch of lean cuisines or other types of like, that I have to imagine is a little bit of what the feeling that home bakers had. So what did dicta recommend they do? Not surprisingly, he suggested that they wind up introducing a little bit of friction back into the experience um, in order to get people to feel like the cake is really theirs. And for reasons, uh, some of which are deeply, deeply psychological and Freudian, the ingredient that he recommended that, that Betty Crocker introduced back into the the process is fresh eggs, have all these other powdered ingredients, but have home bakers crack two fresh eggs and and pop them into the, the mix stir. And that was just enough effort and just enough of a fresh ingredient for people to feel like the cake was theirs. And cakes mix started flying off the shelves and, and General Mills has never looked back since. But this is all in service of this this idea that you prompted, which is sometimes in our attempt to make things more appealing to people, we can inadvertently add these little bits of friction. Yeah, that one was a
1: brilliant well I, I was fully van. I was reading I was reading the book sitting beside my missus in bed, my wife in bed, and I and I was re- reading that bit and I was like kind of going, hmm. It reminds me of One of our first dates, the first day, you know, that first day when she invites you over to eat in her house, and she was going to cook, and she she cooked pad thai, which is you know a beautiful meal, and I was was, I'd never had pad thai before, and I was like, this is beautiful. How? What are those noodles? How did you make them? And she she was really scarce with her answers, and then eventually she blurted out, she. She bought it in a takeaway and just heated it up and dressed it on the <laughs> plate. And I was like, "Can to go?" And I was like, "Can on go?" And it's okay. It's okay. It happens. It happens. Global companies all the time. But the uh, the thing I thought about actually when you were saying is, you know about this because actually you've worked with so many of these innovators, or they've reached out to you. Former students have reached out to you afterwards. Is that oftentimes the organization, the leadership suite, the C suite the executive boardroom will go, you know what, we'll take care of strategy. We'll come up with the vision for the company and we'll just get everybody to execute on it. And I thought, well, that's a nice analogy for what happens there because it's just like that in in that you need some friction which is be well at least try and get people's involvement. Let, let them feel part of it of the cake that we're gonna bake, which is the new
0: organizational vision. You you touch on a really important point, which is in larger organizations in particular senior leadership tends to design the strategy, and then they bring that strategy to the larger organization to implement. And while the leadership may have been thinking about this strategy for months, uh, sometimes longer, like several rounds of iteration, several rounds of discussion, maybe bring in the consultants to come up with the two by two, whatever it is like the leadership team has spent a lot of time thinking about what the strategy ought to be. So they've been that unfamiliar change has become familiar to them, because they've spent a lot of time thinking about it. But one of the, the challenges, particularly when it comes to inertia related friction is when that message is dropped on the re- the broader organization, even though the leadership team has spent months getting used to it that organization is hearing it for the first time and going back to this negativity bias, people's first reaction to any new strategy is look, you know, this has got, there's some way that this is gonna cause a problem for me. I just don't know what it is. So I'm gonna be real anxious about it. And one of the remedies, simple remedies for this uh, friction of inertia is give people time to warm up to a new idea. So begin to drip irrigate them with small messages about the change, give them a little bit of a time time to get on board with it. Don't ask them to say yes or no, the first time they hear about something, make it easier for them to say yes, by getting used to the idea, which is why by the way, going back to my consulting days working at Deloitte or, or IDEO, the way consultancies Uh, structure projects is very much in this ilk, right? You have the project kickoff meeting, So you get everybody's input on what the project direction should be. So people feel a sense of authorship. Uh, Then you have like a mid project check in meeting where you show people what progress you're making and you get their feedback and their input. So you're showing them the direction things are headed in. And then you have some sort of a final meeting where you reveal the strategy. But typically what you're revealing in the final meeting is some iteration of what you'd shared in the midpoint meeting that calls back to some of the inputs from the first meeting. So by structuring projects in this way, you're slowly getting people used to the change that you're planning on introducing, which is why organizations are more receptive at the end. But if I go behind a curtain and then come out with a strategy for the first time at the end of the project, you're like, whoa, like, hold up. How did you how did you get here? So this stuff shows up, we don't necessarily know what we're seeing when we look at this. But these types of approaches to change are all about removing this one specific friction of inertia.
1: I, I thought about that from a consultancy perspective, because there's that part of the mix, the, the you know, for that part as well, where actually some some organisations just want the cake mix, they don't want to even crack open an egg, they just want just give it to me, I'll, I'll execute. But that piece you were talking about is sometimes then you get a good consultancy will certainly make the organisation Absolutely, feel that it's their strategy because they want them to. Because then they're going to have more buy-in. And sometimes then you have a little bit of pushback to the consultancy on what did they do? All they did was crack open a couple of eggs.
0: (laughs) And then there's the worst scenario, and this is I realize is being recorded, so I won't name names. There are those consultancies that are hired simply to validate the idea that you already had, right? Like if this consultancy says it's okay, then all of a sudden like that gives credibility to this, and there's an independent arbiter of our idea. But you know the classic examples of of consultancies like basically powerpointing your own idea and serving it back to you and being like this is brilliant.
1: (laughs) Insurance policies, man, insurance. So nobody gets fired around here. So no worries saying that on this show. (laughs) We say it like it is. There's a killer line there. I I mentioned about um, the student who came back to you about the the chart, the nonprofit they were working in. But you lead on from that. And I don't know if you want to cover that. But this line I thought will speak through to so many CEOs listen to the show because this is a common refrain that I hear. It isn't just the idea that suffers you say, the innovator suffers too. the CEO invested heavily in his vision and put his reputation on the line only to watch it fail. What does the CEO learn from this experience you ask? Many learn to lose faith in those around them. They learn it's impossible to get anything done around here. Frictions are usually hidden from plain sight. If we don't understand the forces of resistance, we end up placing the blame on the people and institutions that reject our ideas, and not the dark forces that undermine them. That was a brilliant line that really encapsulated what you're trying to overcome with the book.
0: And I think the, the other thing, you know, speaking about human element, right, there's the audience, But then there's to your point, there's also the person who's trying to create that change. And again, our instinct is that if people aren't saying, yes, it's something wrong with the organization or it's something wrong with the idea or I'm not explaining it properly. But one of the byproducts of that is if I try something and it doesn't work, perhaps you know, perhaps the organization isn't a place I should work, or perhaps they don't get it, or perhaps there's something wrong with with how I'm in, or, or, or something wrong with my strategy. And again, we can get false negatives and false positives by only focusing on the fuel side of things. I think one of our hopes with everybody who reads this book, sort of like the Matrix like once you see the four frictions hopefully it's impossible to unsee them because once you know that they're there in addition to any other part of a project plan where you're thinking about and I know you've had Alex Osterwalder on the program and you know for example if you use his business model canvas at the beginning of a project typically what Alex will suggest you do is hypothesize about what you think the different elements of the business model are before you begin an initiative. And then as you learn, update those assumptions and either remove them or change them or validate them. We suggest doing the same thing with what we call a friction map. And a friction map, which uh, is introduced in the book, and you can download it from the book's website for free is this basic this worksheet, where at the beginning of a project, you and your teammates sit down and say, "All right." where do we think do we think that there's going to be some inertia here and the question we really ask people is how much of a departure from the status quo is this new idea the greater the departure from the status quo the greater the amount of inertia and we have people sort of forecast or hypothesize where the inertia will exist and with whom then we do the same thing with effort how much physical effort do we think people will perceive or or um uh, cognitive effort or how much ambiguity is there to this change? The more of that, the higher the source of effort related friction. Who do we think will be affected there? How? What is the magnitude of that? What do we hypothesize on that emotion? What might our idea cause? What negative feelings might our ideas cause in others? Either the people that are our champions inside of the organization or people that they try to bring the idea too, because don't forget, particularly in B2B, it's not just the initial recipient, it's also all of those people inside of an organization that that person needs to convince. Where might some emotional friction come in there? And like, where do we forecast for that? And similarly, reactants, do we think anybody might feel like we're trying to impose change upon them? Who might those people be and why? And then as we proceed through a project or we proceed through a change initiative or a venture build, uh, we update those assumptions based on what we learn and we come up with remedies to address them, because what we also know is that frictions are far easier to address when they're forecasted and mitigated than when they pop up after the fact fixing something that has manifested is always harder than trying to forecast it in advance. So going back to your example about change makers, one of our recommendations is everybody who's introducing a new idea, think through these frictions in advance, because addressing them up front will always be more effective and more efficient than uh, remedying them when they present. So to close this concept of
1: fuel thinking, which is the opening part of the book, I love this line as a segue to the rest of the book, you say we focus our attention on adding gunpowder instead of reducing drag, the limitations of fuel call for a new approach to innovation, it demands that we stop thinking in fuel. And the rest of the book explores this new way of thinking. So lovely segue to jump into why we stick to what we know. This is uh, the whole section about inertia. And then how do we overcome inertia? We touched on some of this, but we'll do a little deep dive here because this is the starting point.
0: Um. So yes, as a reminder, uh, inertia is, as you point out, Aiden, our overwhelming desire to stick with things that are familiar to us. And for all of the folks in the audience who are, I mean, you're all focused on innovation in some respect or another. You're all about creating change, you're all about bringing new things to the world or new things to the organization. And you're, you start to notice this tension, the very thing that we are doing to create change triggers this very powerful friction, any new idea by definition is going to have some degree of unfamiliarity to it. And our overwhelming instinct as innovators or entrepreneurs is to highlight the newness of our thing. Like, here's all of the new things that this can help you do. Here's all the new features and benefits. Here's what we're going to be able to do as an organization that we've never been able to do before. Uh, I work in, um, in in healthcare quite a bit. I'm a partner at a venture fund that focuses on digital health. And, you know, mm-hmm. once every couple of weeks, I'll have an entrepreneur meet with me and my, my colleagues and introduce some sort of new technology to help physicians or 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 administrators in hospitals or clinics manage their patient populations better, better manage their workflow or clinical decision support or something, something to help doctors and nurses practice medicine better. And they'll introduce this whizzy piece of technology, which clearly will do a lot of good if it's implemented. And they'll usually ask some version of the question like this is really cool. What is it going to take for this to be adopted into the clinic? And the answer is almost always some version of, well, it's going to take doctors and nurses completely changing the way they practice medicine. I'm like, okay. And in what parallel universe do you think somebody who's been doing something a certain way for 25 or 30 years is going to all of a sudden change their behavior because you show up with this new tool that granted, if it's successful, will give them all sorts of benefit, but like asking them to make that change is really, really, really difficult. So um, one of the remedies we talk about several remedies to overcome this familiarity bias or the status quo bias we call inertia. Uh, one of the remedies which is sort of counterintuitive for most innovators is rather than talk about how new and interesting your thing is, how instead might you make your new idea feel more familiar? How might you in, in design, we use this term, uh, meeting people where they are, And I think sometimes people in the world of design and innovation hear that phrase and they think, oh, that literally means being in the field, meeting people in their homes, meeting people at the moment they need us. True, but it's more of a philosophical principle, which is this idea of don't expect people to change the way they live and work in order to adopt your thing adjust the design of your thing or the introduction of your thing to more neatly fit into the way that people choose to live and work. And so one of the principles here is make an unfamiliar idea feel more familiar. And we talk about this with a few examples, um, but this can be as simple as, you know, what, you know, the naming of certain features that feel different for one of the, the classic examples we talk about in the book, I'm sure people are familiar with is the introduction of the Mac Back in the 1980s, when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were trying to introduce the Mac computer into the world, their goal was to try to get personal computers into the home of more people. At the time, the state of the art were things like IBM PCs or, or others that had DOS based interfaces. And I don't know how many of your audience are, are old enough to remember a DOS based hey. interface. <laughs> yeah. I mean, It was basically like you needed to speak to your computer in code in order to get it to do anything remotely useful. And it was these horrific like black and green screens and Jobs and Wozniak knew that in order to grow the size of the market to get more people thinking about having a personal computer in their home, they had kind of two. Assumptions they were going to base they were going to base it on. Number one, we assume that more people will learn the language of computing, and therefore more people will get a, a comfortable with DOS, and we can pr- produce a DOS-based computer. Um, or we can change the way computer interfaces work to make them feel more familiar to people that don't have conversancy in computing language. And so, it's not an accident that. Uh, the first graphical user interface was introduced by Apple computer. And graphical user interfaces are how your computers look now, which is you don't need to speak to it in code, it actually looks user friendly. And, and there's some design elements that I don't know that people recognize that are really important, like, to this day, at the time, and still to this day, the home screen of a Mac computer is called a desktop because when people do work in the analog world, they do it at a desktop. So why do we change it? Why should we call it a home screen? Let's call it a desktop. Let's make it more familiar to people. Um, It's no surprise that you create on that Mac desktop documents, literally quote unquote documents, and you store your documents in folders. And when you're done with that document, you literally crumple it up. You don't delete it because delete is a computer term. You crumple it up and you drag it into the trash. So they've designed the interface to feel familiar because it works the way the rest of your world works. And oftentimes when I'm in class at Kellogg and I I talk about familiarity in particular, I'll usually hold up my phone and I'll say, how many of you in the audience have ever seen a two year old use an iPhone? And half the hands in the room will go up and I'll and I'll say, does does it blow your mind? And they all say, Yeah, like blows your mind. And I'll say, like, for example, like they go into your pictures. What do they start doing when they go into the pictures? And people will start doing this with their fingers. And I'll ask the group, How do they know how to do this? Like, how do they know how to to do that? And most people will say, Well, they see you do it and um, or trial and error. And oftentimes someone will say, Oh, because it's intuitive. And I'll say, Well, hold up like intuitive is actually an output of good design. It's intuitive because of something it's not an input. And eventually what you get to is that the reason that it's easy for kids to know how to use uh, an iPhone from the moment they pick it up, is it works the way the rest of your world works. when you're a child and you sit on your parents lap and you want to turn the pages of a book. This is how you turn the pages of a book or you want to move something in the analog world from one place to another, you put your hand on it and you drag it. And so in an effort to get more people interested in computing or more people interested in iPhones or more people interested in iPads, Apple does a phenomenal job of designing products and services to work the way we want them to, because they're designing it based on how we currently live versus how they want us to live in the future. And so Apple is masterful at practicing this philosophy of meeting people where they are taking unfamiliar ideas and making them feel more familiar.
1: And in that chapter, you talk about the power of analogies, which is essentially what this was, but I loved, I, I thought of you, for example, in the VC and people come in to pitch to you. And you know, when you hear this often as well It's like, so what's it like out there? And people are it's like nothing. This is the one of its kind, it's unique. And actually, that's not quite a great idea, because you wanted to be able to at least describe it and say it's like something else. It's important for everybody to be able to grasp the concept.
0: I mean, I could talk all day about this. In fact, I'm writing a, a piece for Inc. on this particular topic right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, entrepreneurs. Oh, it's a first of its kind. It's a first in class. It's a market creating event. It might be, but but chances are, it's probably got some loose or or, or rough modeling on something that, that that already exists. And as investors you know, we are risk capital. So we we are interested in taking risk, but really good investors are risk mitigators. And so when we're listening to pitches, we're trying to evaluate how much risk is there with the team? How much risk is there with the product? How much risk is there with regulation? How much risk is there with the business model? And the more founders can remove systematically remove our our concerns about risk in their presentations, the more likely we'll we'll dig in. And the newer and more unproven it sounds, the more risk there is. So you may be the first person to do on demand dog walking, but are there other business models out there that you can point to where like this business model has worked in this one other field and had great success. So even though we're taking that business model and applying it to dog walking like Uber for dog walking, uh, now, all of a sudden, I've taken some of the risk in your mind out of the out of your head, which is all right, well, this is a proven business model is not a proven business model in this domain, people are used to on demand, you don't have to get consumers up the learning curve about what on demand services look like. Now, it's just a matter of getting them comfortable with using an Uber type service except for dog walking. So the more you can give somebody an analogy and say it's like this, but with these changes, the less unfamiliar it feels, or I guess, said more concisely the more familiar it feels and because it feels more familiar it feels less risky.
1: We're going to run out of time man. I told you it would fly by <laughs> this is fly by. We we there's five ways you talk about overcoming inertia but we've kind of touched on a couple of them and we'll we'll recap on those. But I loved when you sh- shared the thought experiment of the pleasure machine. And that, And then the updated version, the Joshua Green updated version as well, and the comparison of the two. I thought that was a great way of putting it out there for people to go, "Look, we are inertia loving
0: beings." Yeah, I mean it, so this is a this is a, a cool example from some psychological experiments that were done, and, and this is where Lauren Lauren, my co-author, uh, really brings such great stuff to the book because he deeply knows. All of the, the psychology behind these, these phenomena. But one of these examples that we reference in the book is, is called the pleasure machine. And the, the gist of this is uh, trying to understand just how powerful the status quo bias is. And, uh, the idea in broad strokes is that if you ask a bunch of people, uh, you know, would you you go in, you sort of create this hypothetical situation, you go into this virtual reality environment, almost like the matrix, it almost exactly like the matrix, we sort of plug you into this machine, and it alters your reality, and you have everything you want, you're, you're as wealthy as you'd like to be, you've got this great job, you've got this great family, but none of it is real. And what we what we will do is every year, we'll check in with you. And we'll say, Do you want to stay in the pleasure machine? Or do you not want to stay in the pleasure machine? And at the end of the year, we'll we'll give you the choice to rejoin the living world with all of the idiosyncrasies or stay inside of this idyllic environment and the way the experiment is conducted initially uh, most people would say you know pleasure machine's great but after a year I'm I'm coming out because the reality of my current world is more appealing to me than this fictitious idyllic environment that I I, li- I I've been sort of experimented into I thought of uh, that.
1: Yeah, do you, you know, I remember Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was like, that's yeah. kind of, it might have inspired, I'm not sure. But that's what came to
0: mind for me. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. And, and I think, you know, the matrix is the other one, which is like, I've got all these powers. And that's not how I am in real life. And if I unplug myself, I'm sort of this ordinary dude living on a submarine or whatever it is. Um, but there's a uh, there was a really clever uh, modification to this experiment that was done later to further prove the status quo bias, which was, and I can't remember exactly how the language was teed up, but it was this small experimental change, which is um, the environment you're in right now, the one you live in today is actually uh, a fantasy like this is you're in the pleasure machine right now. And you've got your family, you've got your kids, you've got your dog, you've got your house we can either pull the plug on the pleasure machine and you can return to your true reality or you can stay in the pleasure machine. Now, all of a sudden, because the the reality, even though we're in it, is false, it's still the reality we know. And so people choose to stay in the pleasure machine because of the familiarity bias of even the imperfect world they live in today. It's still the world they know, and they'd rather not give up the things that they know, in pursuit of something more authentic or different. So all of this is just experiment designed to prove the power of the status quo bias in a bunch of different ways
1: let's build on that then and go Okay, so that's inertia, we we know this, we didn't need to describe this to you, you know, this deep down, those of you who are makers, maybe CEOs and organisations, you know how it is difficult to even get people to adopt a new CRM or a new piece of software, it's so bloody difficult for get people to change. But in the book, David and Lauren show us how and give us some recipes for success here. So we mentioned some of these earlier on repetition, start small, find a familiar face, make it prototypical, and use analogy. So we've kind of covered use analogies, we've kind of covered repetition and start small. How about find a familiar face and make it prototypical?
0: Um, So find a familiar sometimes a new idea. Again, people tend to favour things they know versus things they don't. It could be that the idea doesn't have any good analogs, it could be that the idea is truly market revolutionary or market creating. Uh, so how do you go about trying to add familiarity to something that inherently has no, no comps? One of the ways to do it is to find a messenger that people know. So you as an entrepreneur, I'll go back to that example. Maybe maybe I'm pitching you a market creating innovation that doesn't have a known business model analog. There is a bunch of risk attached to it. And I, as an entrepreneur, and i am unknown to you as the investors. How might I try to add at least a little bit more familiarity? Uh, one is to have somebody introduce me to that venture fund that is is familiar to them. So that credibility of the messenger gets extended to me as the entrepreneur. And that helps take the unfamiliarity of me as a, a new founder and make me feel a little bit less threatening and a little bit more familiar to you. So the endorsement, so to speak, of somebody who is credible, who somebody knows can add a lot to an unfamiliar idea, there is a there's a, an ad in uh, in the United States. I don't know if Tom Selleck was ever big in Europe. Oh yeah, Magnum, yeah Magnum Pi, right? So Magnum Pi on daytime TV is now selling older Americans reverse mortgages and if you're like what is a reverse mortgage like that is precisely the unfamiliar idea like a reverse mortgage is basically how to take equity out of your house and use it for your life but like you think about mortgages you think about homes you think about financial crises you're like man this sounds dodgy this sounds weird so how does this company get people comfortable with the idea of reverse re- reverse mortgages particularly like baby boomers and and, and older folks um And the way they've chosen to do it is by making Tom Selleck the spokesperson, right? And Tom Selleck in this line in the ad uh, is like, you know, I trust them. And if I can trust them, you can trust them. And I'm like, (laughs) damn, like somewhere in their market research, somebody found that Tom Selleck is this overwhelmingly compelling uh, uh, endorser of, of ideas. Like if Tom Selleck says it's cool, it must be cool. And so this is all in an attempt through a familiar face to make an unfamiliar idea more comfortable in the States,
1: in particular, the mere exposure effect, maybe you'll unpack that because that's why often a lot of the presidents who end up as presidents are
0: presidents. Well, the mere exposure, the the exposure effect is the more we see something, the more familiar it becomes. Um, and, and again, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about introducing new innovation strategies or new strategies to a company. Like the first time I see it, it's unfamiliar. The second time I see it, it's still unfamiliar, but less unfamiliar. The third time I'm like, ah, Okay, I've heard about this before the fourth time. And if you can sort of drip, irrigate people with the nuggets of new ideas, by the time you're asking them to say yes, typically, they're more inclined to say yes. And one of the an- analogies we use in the book is uh, like the first time you try beer or coffee. Like the first time most people try beer, they're like, I don't really like this. Second time sharing, like "Eh, maybe not so good. The third time, like the more you drink coffee, or the more you drink a beer, the familiarity, the exposure increases its appeal. And it's also true of an idea. Like if you're asking somebody if your idea is is a a beer or or like a, a, a strong coffee, and you're asking people like do you want to be a coffee drinker for the rest of your life after the first time they try it they're probably like nope i definitely do not want to commit to drinking coffee for the rest of my life but the more they get used to it the more open they are to that idea and the same is true of innovation damn
1: you George Clooney on your espresso <laughs>
0: yeah right there you go <laughs> uh,
1: i was thinking about no i was i was Tom thinking about the of the espresso world yeah exactly yeah but that the whole idea of influencer marketing you, you know sports players endorsing stuff, yeah. all that stuff. It's all it's all in there. One it of the is. great ones you talked about, though, to use this to your advantage as an innovator, you mentioned, so we talked about Ali Reda earlier on. But he was even though you know, talk talk about not being satisfied with what he has. <laughs> he's like, you know, where I'm a little bit low, it's with the Hispanic market, I need hmm. some help there. And he used the power of this effect to actually oh, even bump up his sales again.
0: Yeah, so um, in Dearborn, there is a pretty diverse population of ethnicities, there's uh, uh, Persian and Middle Eastern and European, and then there's also a pretty sizable Latinx community in Dearborn. And one of the things that that helps Ali become successful is he's a pretty known person in Dearborn. He and this is also to you know, the the exposure effect, he shows up to community events, he shows up to um, uh, all sorts of different stuff in and around Dearborn. So people know his face, and and that makes him more trustworthy. Uh, But in order to uh, become more trusted by the Latinx community, who doesn't necessarily see themselves in the same circles that Ali travels in or, or go to the same events that Ali goes to. He wound up hiring uh, somebody that he trained as his protege, uh, a guy I believe his name is Carlos. He hired him to, uh he ta- taught him everything he knew about selling, employed him at the same dealership under Ali and Carlos's primary customer segment are The Latinx community that that he's super familiar in and super familiar with. And he's become very successful focusing on that particular community because he knows a lot about cultural norms. He knows a lot about some of the headwinds that exist in some of those families. And so, one of the ways Ali has increased his market share through the dealership is by bringing people in that are more closely connected to the communities he's trying to serve.
1: Absolutely brilliant. And because again, you know, selling your idea, if the Salesperson of the idea is not the right person. Your idea is never going to succeed, which is a very important point and sometimes hard to fathom or to swallow—a bitter pill to swallow for the innovator. We're running out of time, but a couple of—I'd love to get into a bit of effort. The prime, you know, the the effort effect. You, one of the terms you coined,
0: effort and neglect. Before we go to effort, can I just sort of use kind sure. of build a bridge from that to emotion? Uh, we've talked a little bit about effort, particularly as it relates to the cake mix example, but there's another really good. um parallel to what we were just talking about. Do you mind if I like ad lib a little bit? Cool. So um, one other really neat story we tell in this book, in the chapter on emotion, um, just like people want messengers that have some familiarity, people want to uh, interact with people that feel more comfortable to them. It's also important to include your audience in the process of design when you are designing something new. It's not just about creating a brilliant thing and then putting it in the hands of a familiar messenger and then hoping that it sells. Sometimes you want to be really thoughtful. Always you want to be really thoughtful in the design of the idea to make sure that it is being um, respectful of not just the functional needs people have, but the social and emotional needs they have. And I worked for a long time at IDEO, which is a design and innovation consultancy. Um fantastic firm with a great history. one of the challenges that that I think IDEO ha, has had historically is that most of the people that work at ideO tend to be relatively young like it's design and innovation is a bit of a young or at least the perception is it's a little bit of a young person's game, and yet ideO is attempting to build products and services for all types of people of all ages and and not surprisingly there is a huge need to create more interesting products and services for elders, for people who are aging, either keeping them in the workforce longer or helping them age more comfortably or healthcare, whatever it might be. And so here we have a a company that has a lot of designers in their 30s designing for people who are in their 80s and 90s. How do you bridge that gap, right? How do you help make these ideas feel more appropriate for meeting these individuals where they are? And there's this fantastic story in the book uh, about the background of this. But but one of the things we highlight is a woman. One of the people we highlight is a woman named Barbara Beskind, and Barbara uh, joined Ideo at age 90. Uh, and the story of how she got to Ideo is pretty cool. But she joined Ideo at age 90. She uh, would show up to the Palo Alto studio a couple days a week and work on project teams. She has a background in organizational design would show up working to sit with project teams that are working on projects for aging, not just to help those project teams think about the design of an idea or how to make buttons easier to use for people with arthritic hands or things easier to see for people that have macular degeneration, but also to help the team understand how that idea is likely to be perceived by its intended audience. And there are countless examples of Barbara flagging for these project teams, what they think is a really good idea is being something that will cause a lot of emotional friction in the market. One example is a team was doing some work for an assisted living company, and trying to create a more um, uh, a better experience for people in assisted living and how might we make this feel more aspirational instead of feeling uh, like more of a negative experience. And one of the analogs they look to to think about how to make this experience better were things like all inclusive resorts and cruise lines. So all inclusive resorts, you pay an activity fee and then you have unlimited access to all of the activities. You don't have to worry about deciding, should I do this or do that? Do I have to take out my checkbook? everything is included. And so maybe one way to make the assisted living experience feel better, is to design it in such a way where when people show up to an assisted living facility, they pay this upfront activity fee of like 3500 or 4000 bucks. And then for the whole year, they don't have to worry about, you know, one one officer making decisions about what to do. Wouldn't that be great? And they brought this idea to Barbara and they said, hey, Barbara, we got this fantastic idea. People will pay this upfront activity fee and then they can do anything they want not have to worry about it. And Barbara's like, that is the most insulting idea I've ever heard. And the team's like, what? Like how? How is that insulting? And what Barbara was able to shed light on for them is, well, think about everything that had to happen in somebody's life to get them to an assisted living facility in the first place. Their life has been this steady stream of losses, right? They've lost their income, likely. They may have lost a partner. They've probably lost some vision. They've lost some mobility, maybe all of their mobility. They've lost like security in their independence. And now they're going up to an assisted living facility. And now, upon their arrival you want them to part with an additional four thousand dollars of their very limited resources like what are you thinking and all of a sudden the team's like holy like you know fill in the blank like we never would have thought about it and of course they wouldn't have because they don't have that experience they don't have that lived experience so one of the things that, that is really beneficial about having someone like Barbara on the team, or whoever your Barbara is representing the customers or the organizational stakeholders that you're trying to serve, is not only can they help figure out functional needs that people have, but they can also help you predict where emotional friction is lurking. Because if you're not careful, you will inadvertently like the cake mix, or inadvertently like the assisted living facility, you'll inadvertently cause friction when you think you're actually helping people.
1: There is really so much more I, I mentioned, I have a copy up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter, to be in with a chance to win this brilliant book. I absolutely loved it. David, for people who want to find you, you mentioned, for example, you keynote a lot, uh, a couple of the key keynotes in there, the Davos for procurement. <laughs> 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 Let's leave our audience to find out those people who get a copy of the book, you'll find out what that's about. But where can people
0: find you for that work? And indeed your consultancy work? So sure, thank you. Uh- you can find me dot davidschonthal.com, S C H uh, O N T H A L, is my homepage, and you can find information on things that I'm writing or publications there. Also, my faculty page at the Kellogg website. There's some information on how to get in touch with me.
1: Author of The Human Element Overcoming the Resistance
0: That Awaits New Ideas, David Schontal, thank you for joining us. It is always clear to me when somebody spends time in the material and does their their research, and that's really meaningful for me. And so it is abundantly clear that you've put a lot of preparation into this, I'd love to do a little bit more on this, and
1: maybe do something else again. And indeed, your future books, there's definitely going to be more so and as long as you don't try and sell me some type of reverse pension <laughs> <package>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave
0: that to Tom Sullivan.
1: As always, thanks to our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and transfer funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com, and I'll see you very soon.